From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Kate Moody. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. We're bringing you the biggest stories in the industry from the past week, including JP Morgan Chase swoops in for First Republic Bank. A really massive story with huge repercussions across the whole industry. We dig into what's happened and what we think is likely to happen next. Revolut goes live in Brazil. Can Revolut go toe-to-toe with Newbank? Really fascinating market and huge opportunity, but also huge challenges. And who would you crown the king or queen of fintech? We've got the coronation coming up in the UK this week, so we have a little play around with our own kings and queens of fintech. We get into all this and much more on today's jam-packed news show. But first, a few brief messages. Back in a minute. This episode is brought to you by Global Processing Services. At Global Processing Services, the expert partner in issuer processing, they take your security seriously. Their game-changing fraud advantage tool powered by FeatureSpace assesses fraud risks in milliseconds and uses AI and machine learning to constantly adapt to stay ahead of emerging fraud threats. With their array of available fraud solutions at your fingertips, you can feel secure with GPS as your payment processing partner. Find out more at www.globalprocessing.com forward slash fraud management. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider, Blockchain Insider, 11FS Spotlight, 11FS Explores, Open Mic Night, After Dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Welcome to episode 735 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody, Customer Strategy Director at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, it's my 11FS colleague, Benjamin Enser, Director of Research and Strategy. Hey, Benjamin, what what are you up to this week? Work anything? Anything exciting? I'm tempted to say, may the fourth be with you, um, but I shouldn't. Uh, yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, we're working on some really interesting things. Um, we're just finishing up some work we've been doing for a member-owned uh, financial organization, looking at how to, to develop a better digital strategy for their customers and how they can meet more of their customers' needs and so on. So that's been a really, really interesting one. And we've got a couple of really interesting projects coming up on payments, one in the, in the sort of retail area and one in the sort of corporate foreign exchange area super interesting challenges of how do you firstly how do you get people to adopt new payment systems it's incredibly hard anyway and then secondly how do you improve on some of the existing systems and get rid of some of the uh, frustrations and challenges that, that customers have with payment systems so hard but really interesting awesome well yeah looking forward to getting a debrief on, on what you find as you get into that up next we have a welcome return to fintech insider for anita ramaswamy columnist at reuters breaking views welcome back to the show anita congrats on the new role can you tell us a bit about your beat at reuters please yeah for sure thanks so much um it's great to be back on and i recently joined at reuters breaking views we're the financial commentary section of reuters so we do a lot of um, financial analysis market commentary that sort of thing and our beats are somewhat broad so we can cover all sorts of topics in business, but I personally focus on tech, VC, um, and with a particular focus on fintech and crypto, because that's where a lot of my background is. 
Fantastic. Well, very much looking forward to raiding your brain as we go through the, the news today. So thank you very much for coming back and joining us. So with that, let's get into the news. We're starting with a to-be-continued story from last week's news show. Um, we've taken this from the BBC News, but it's been pretty much everywhere. And that is about First Republic. JP Morgan snaps up major US bank. JP Morgan Chase has taken over the troubled US bank First Republic in a deal brokered by regulators. The Wall Street giant said it would pay $10.6 billion, that's £8.5 billion, to the Federal Insurance Deposit Court, or the FDIC, after officials shut down the smaller bank. First Republic has been under pressure since last month when the collapse of two other US lenders sparked fears about the state of the US banking system. Authorities said they hoped the deal would resolve the panic. The failure of San Francisco-based First Republic is the second largest in US history and the third in the country since March. Well, yeah, this was definitely one of those stories where, as we were talking about it in the previous show, we just knew it was going to kind of keep keep evolving and, and changing. So, um, Anita, I'll come to you first. What what's the kind of what are the key takeaways to, to take from this? Who's the big winner here? I think um, there's a couple of winners. Definitely, the customers are the biggest one. You know, it's it's always stressful to be sort of in this limbo with you know systemic risk, and I think there's just been a lot of anxiety over the state of the banking system in general. So obviously for the customers, this is a great outcome. But I did think it was really interesting, um, you know, to see Jamie Dimon sort of riding to the rescue once again after he did something similar um, in the wake of 2008. Um, And this was a pretty good deal for JP Morgan. They got the assets, um, or they got the loan book, I believe, and the assets at some 13% discount to book value. Um, And the FDIC kind of threw in some some deal sweeteners. They're going to share the losses of any uh, on the loan book around 80%. So there's a limited downside for JP Morgan from this deal and they are getting a lot of um you know a lot of assets at a pretty good price. Benjamin, what's your what's your take on this story? Who's the winner here from your perspective? Well, I agree with uh, what Anita said. Um in the you know customers are obviously the big winners here. Any time a bank goes under, that's bad for customers. At the time that First Republic first got into trouble, of course, the the FDIC guarantee didn't cover all of those assets. And I think that's one of the reasons why First Republic got into trouble is because it had lots of really wealthy customers who therefore had a lot more money per person um, at the bank or probably had a lot more money than than typical depositors. but clearly, J.P. Morgan is a big winner here too. You know, First Direct has long been sorry, First Republic. <laughs> excuse me, I'm going British. First Republic has long been long been known for having a lot of very wealthy customers. So, winning those kind of customers, particularly for J.P. Morgan Chase, which already has a strong business with upmarket customers, is a big win for for Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, so, I think two winners there. The losers are really you know the, the shareholders of First Republic. Yeah, we've seen shareholders lose out in pretty much all of these, all of these failures so far. Particularly, obviously, we talked about it when the the story of, of Credit Suisse was was on the show as well. I think obviously a difficult time for for shareholders generally, and we're seeing I think some some jitters obviously in the market in the aftermath of of this sale. Um, Anita Jamie Diamond's come out and sort of said that you know, with this with this move, the bank the crisis is over. We can all we can all go back to normal. Do you agree with him? Not entirely. Um, I think there's definitely the crisis has been stemmed. And I think that, you know, the FDIC and the U.S. government has made it clear that at the end of the day, customers are not going to see huge losses and they don't have to worry. So that the panic has been quelled in some ways. But I think that the language that um, that Diamond used maybe was a little premature. The system, maybe he could have said something like the system is secure now, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the crisis is completely over. You know, we, we don't know when if this could happen again. 
already we're seeing some other cracks in the system. And, you know, even the events leading up to this, nobody really thought we would get here with the third bank failure in a really short span of time. Absolutely. Um, and you know, Benjamin, as, as Anita said, you know, the FDIC has come in and, and kind of worked with JP Morgan on this to kind of share some of the guarantees. There's, there's a cost to the FDIC of of putting through this deal. Like, do you think that we're going to see any repercussions from that? You know, are banks going to have to pay more for their contributions to these insurance schemes? Is it going to have a wider impact on the US financial system in that sense? Yeah, effectively, there's a, you know, there's a cost of those guarantees. There's a cost to the sort of whole banking system. Banks will have to set aside more reserves. I'm not sure, I haven't looked into the exact logistics, but they probably have to pay more to the FDIC. So yes, it imposes a cost on the whole system to make it safer. I think the fundamental problem, I mean, to build on what Anita was saying, is the, the immediate crisis may be over, but you've still got this long long-term problem where you've got um, an asset liability mismatch at pretty much all banks where, and not just in the States, worldwide, where depositors have their deposits on sort of short term. And and we all expect to be able to go into our bank and get our money out immediately, for the most part. Obviously, there are some longer term bonds and so on. Um, Meanwhile, to generate a return on those deposits, those banks have to lend that money out long term to, you know, people building houses or whatever it might be. Um, And so you've got this mismatch, this asset liability mismatch. Now, Silicon Valley Bank got caught out by that because they put their money into US treasuries, which should have been safe and kind of are safe. But um, when interest rates shot up, suddenly they were worth a lot less. And once customers started pulling out their money, they got a problem. Now, you actually have that liquidity risk in every single bank everywhere around the world. Um, And in an era of social media where panic can spread like wildfire, you've got a real problem, right? Because in the 19th century, rumors took time to spread, right? They spread by word of mouth. In the 21st century, rumors spread in, in seconds. So that problem isn't fixed. And that's a major challenge, not just for the banking industry or fintech. That's a major challenge for world economies. How do you deal with that? How do you stop people from panicking? Because um, saying don't panic doesn't help. Yeah, I tend to find it, has, it <laughs> normally has the opposite opposite <laughs> imp- impact, in fact. Um, and it was actually really interesting. We had the, one, you know, the CEO of Super.com on the show last week, and he was talking about how they had been directly impacted as a business by SVB's failure and the impact that that was having on how they thought about their, you know, their treasury management as a business. And I think you know, that, for me, is, again, also going to be really interesting to see play out. You know, are more of these businesses that do have more than the deposit limits of a single bank on in their accounts? Are they going to be making very different decisions about how they spread their, their money across different banks? Are we going to see kind of a rise of, you know, supporting structures or systems or platforms that help some of these small or medium-sized businesses to spread their money and manage that in a smoother way? Because at the moment, having to sort of spread your money manually across four or five different banks and then manage all of that is, is a big administrative burden for, for someone to, to carry. So I'm interested to see if this creates almost like a new problem space for those small or medium-sized businesses of just trying to find smoother ways to manage that multiple banking relationship if, if that's what we start to see increase in the aftermath of this. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we'll also see banks starting to say, um, we need to fix more of these deposits, right? We can't have all of our deposits being able to just be withdrawn just like that, because it makes us too vulnerable. You know, however big you are, if you're if you're JP Morgan Chase or Barclays, you know, this could, in theory, happen to any bank. So I think we're going to start seeing banks starting to say to customers, okay, if you want to deposit more than, I don't know, $10,000 or 20,000 euros or whatever with us, you've got to put that into term limited, or, you know, term deposits, because we can't, we can't risk you just pulling all your money out. 
Anita, what do you reckon? What's your prediction? I think that startups are definitely going to have to get uh, more prudent, um, startups in particular in light of SVB, about how they're doing treasury management, just like you said. I think that, you know, this is just, it's an area that has to be solved both by the companies themselves, the depositors, as well as the banks. And I think there needs to be a little increased prudence on both sides. I think there's there's been a lot of interesting back and forth about, you know, was this sort of, at least with SVB and with Signature Bank, you know, was this sort of an issue of like the crypto and tech community um, spreading risk to the financial system. And then others are saying it was actually the financial system spreading risk to those two sectors. And so I think in a way, it's sort of a circular problem and the the, the issue has to be addressed on both sides. Yeah, for sure. I suppose on that topic of spreading risk, I think one of the interesting and probably fair criticisms I've seen of this deal is that it you know, has allowed JPMC to kind of go increase their their share of the US market. You know, they're at, the, at this point where they had more than 10%, I think, of, of deposits or assets. But you know, there are safeguards in the US system to prevent any one bank from holding more than that. And it's only in sort of times of extreme emergency that they are allowed to make these types of acquisitions. So, um, you know, there have been some criticisms that this is allowing, you know, a big bank to get even bigger. Um, and that in itself poses sort of big challenges to the US the balance of the US system as a whole. So, um, yeah. I'm thinking listeners in other countries are probably thinking, hmm, one bank having 10%, how's that a problem? Like in, in most countries, you have probably three, four, maybe even five banks that have more than 10% market share. So yeah, it's not great from a competition standpoint, but actually I don't think that's the biggest problem here. Well, on, that's probably quite a good segue onto our, onto our next story, talking of markets which have high concentrations of big banks. Um, our next story comes from AltFi, and that is that Revolut is taking on Newbank with a Brazil launch and a LATAM push. Revolut has launched its first country in Latin America, offering a multi-currency account and crypto investments in Brazil. In March 2022, Revolut made its first steps into the region after hiring Glauber Mota as its Brazil CEO and opening a waitlist. This waitlist will now be expanded with existing names being added in a phased rollout. Revolut has surpassed 25 million customers worldwide amid an expansive growth strategy. The self-declared only financial super app also plans to launch in India, Mexico and New Zealand in the near future. Well, Benjamin, have you got popcorn at the ready for Revolut going to -to toe-to-toe with Newbank? What do you think? I think it's really tough moving into new markets where there's a lot of established competition, right? Um, everyone focuses on new bank, but of course there are dozens of other uh, digital banks in Brazil, Banco Original, um, C6 Bank, uh, Banco uh, Inter, etc. So there's dozens of other digital banks already in uh, Brazil. So are Brazilians sort of sitting there waiting for a new proposition to come in? Is there a great opportunity space for, for Revolut to, to jump into? I don't know. Uh, what's their strategy? How are they going to appeal to customers who've already got lots of offerings? Um, I think it's very different to Revolut moving into adjacent European markets where uh, it's already sort of got all the right sort of products and there's a gap in the market because people haven't gone into some of those smaller European countries where Revolut has been enormously successful. So it will be interesting to see if Revolut's still there in two years' time because if they are, incredibly well done to them because it's very, very difficult to move into a big country where there's lots of strong propositions already. Had they launched five years ago, sure, but now it's really tough to come into Brazil, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. I think you know, looking at 
some of the statements that have come out from Revolut and kind of the things that their CEO has been saying, it really sort of sounds like they're trying to focus on that sort of middle class segment, really trying to support customers who are trying to kind of shop online, looking to travel abroad. You know, it sounds like you know, that New Bank have a, a really obviously, and all these other fintechs you've talked about or digital banks you've talked about have very strong offerings sort of in market, but it sounds like Revolut is really going to try and double down on its sort of travel proposition and its offers in that space. Um, and I'm guessing also kind of the, the crypto element, maybe we can jump into that in a bit more detail in a sec. Anita, I'm, I'm keen to get your your take on this. What, what do you think of, what do you, how do you rate New Bank's, uh, oh sorry, Revolut's chances of taking on New Bank in Brazil? I think it's a really tough time in general, just, um, you know, from the broader fintech market perspective, we saw Revolut got their valuation um, revised downward by one of their investors recently by about 46%. That valuation cut from Schroeder's is just indicative that even though Revolut is profitable and, you know, they're doing relatively well compared to other neobanks, it's just a tough time in general in the space. And I think we're going to see a, a broader culling of some of these neobanks that we saw pop up in the past couple of years. So, you know, they're entering a new market. It's going to be challenging. And while there certainly is demand, especially um, in terms of crypto in the Brazilian market, they are going against an, a, a fairly entrenched incumbent. And, um, you know, it's, it's just going to be difficult for them to be able to manage their costs and manage the strategy there um, and to expand in this time when it seems like the rest of the fintech world is contracting. And you know, how, how would you say Revolut are doing in, in the US at the moment? Obviously, they're trying to sort of launch and, and sort of roll out there as well. I, I think it's a really saturated market, so I, I honestly don't, um, I, I don't have a super strong assessment of it, and maybe that speaks for itself in a way. Yeah, no, I think absolutely, Benjamin. Obviously, one of the key things that Revolut leans on in, in all of its markets is this kind of integration of crypto into its into its offering as a sort of point of differentiation versus some of the other fintechs. How important do you think that crypto aspect is to their their pitch in Brazil? Well, it's an interesting question. I was thinking about that when you were talking about the sort of foreign exchange angle for the for the middle classes. Like, which of those two is going to be more compelling? Right? Are Brazilians more concerned about the stability of their currency and therefore wanting to move money into alternative assets like crypto assets, or are they more concerned with being able to move money, you know, to other other Latin American countries um, or? You know, money around as they travel. Um, I think both of those are potentially compelling acquisition vehicles. I think one of the reasons Revolut has been successful in Europe is precisely that foreign exchange thing, that actually a lot of people initially get Revolut as a handy foreign exchange app and only later start embracing some of the other services. So having that sort of unique thing that gets people to adopt it is great. Now, you know, maybe crypto can also be that. So if that gives them two vectors, two stories for people to tell about, hey, I'm using Revolut because, you know, because what you really, really need if you're going to try and break into a market is you need customers to start telling each other things about how great your product is, right? So we, you know, Revolut needs Anita to be telling all of her friends how amazing Revolut is in the States. Now, she's not doing that because Revolut hasn't come up with a good story to, for Americans to tell each other. And I think that's going to be Revolut's key in Brazil is can they come up with good stories for Brazilians to tell each other about, hey, I use this app because... Yeah, no, I think that's that's definitely a really interesting thing for us to watch out, like kind of what is that kind of go-to-market strategy as they, as they start to roll out in earnest. I think in Brazil, I find such a fascinating market because it has this sort of juxtaposition of on one hand, you know, obviously it's a huge population in general, I think over 200 million people and a sort of a massive proportion of you know, unbanked people, I think over 30 million people who are unbanked. But you know, alongside that also like just hugely accelerated uptakes of you know, digital payment systems, you know, the rollout of PICs has been 
absolutely phenomenal. So, you know, Anita, kind of to your mind, do you see Brazil as kind of like an emerging market or is it now just like a mainstream digital financial player? I think perhaps it's on the precipice um, between the two. But I think for Revolut, the interesting part of the opportunity here is that there's still a lot of fragmentation in terms of individual people in Brazil and the, the number of financial apps that they're using. I mean, I thought it was really interesting. I was kind of reading about this topic that there's research that, that, that Revolut cites that says Brazilians are using more than five different applications to manage their payments, to transfer money, to manage their investments, all of that. And I know we saw this big wave last year um, and the year prior of fintech companies sort of trying to become the one-stop shop. And I think if they're able to be that player in the Brazilian market, I mean, that would be that would be the strategy in my eyes. Absolutely. Um, and Benjamin, you already alluded to how difficult it is to be successful in just one new market, how big a burden that is. You revoluted talking about rolling out in multiple markets in very quick succession, you know, India, Mexico, New Zealand. Um, you know, which market do you think they're most likely to have success in? I think they're actually most likely to succeed in some of the smaller markets where there's not a lot of existing competition um, or markets that are closely adjacent to ones they already operate in. So New Zealand is a small country, obviously, but it's similar to Australia, so they can relatively easily migrate some of that. I think when you come to a country like Mexico or Brazil, um, with very different payment habits, very different behaviors and so on, there's a lot more work to go into marketing to really understand the customers, to really understand what propositions are compelling. But it really depends on the existing alternatives, right? Because new banks succeed when they're much better than the existing alternatives. So the weaker the existing proposition, the easier it is to come up with something that's compelling and different and better. Absolutely. Um, and Anita, obviously, got a bold claim from, from Revolut that they are the only financial super app. Do you think that's a legitimate claim? I, I don't think so. I mean, there's tons of other examples of financial super apps and everyone is trying to build them. You have WeChat, you have Paytm. Those are some of the ones that come to mind initially. Um, I, I guess maybe their strategy is a little bit different in in the fact that you know Revolut is sort of seen as this foreign exchange app and, and the use case that they might lead with and the story they might tell could be a little different, but they're definitely not the only one out there in the market. Yeah, I think um, I was a little bit a little bit skeptical when 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 I read that. I mean, we had someone on the show last week who was very assertive that they were also building a financial super app. So um, I guess yeah, lots of people claiming to to be in that space. Okay, well, we're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back shortly. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Welcome back. Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a quick note to go check out the latest episode of our Fintech Insider Insights show. Benjamin is joined by some great guests from Atom Bank, Coastal Community Bank and Vexi to discuss how important is trust to financial services in 2023. A fantastic discussion on how trust is won, lost and whether it even really matters. Go check that out wherever you got this episode from and let us know what you think. 
Okay, let's get back into the news. Our next story comes from IFA magazine, and that is that an investment fund created by ChatGPT is smashing the UK's top 10 most popular funds. A fund consisting of 38 stocks chosen by ChatGPT has risen 4.9% in the eight weeks since it was created. The fictional fund created as a conceptual experiment by Finder.com is outperforming the average of the UK's 10 most popular funds, which have collectively lost 0.8% in value over the same time period. To create the fund, Finder asked ChatGPT to create a portfolio of stocks that followed a range of investing principles taken from leading funds. Despite two warnings that it cannot provide specific investment advice, this was quickly bypassed by telling it this was just a theoretical exercise. The ChatGPT fund has led the real funds for 34 of the 37 market days, 87% of its lifespan so far. ChatGPT, the popular chatbot from OpenAI, reached 100 million monthly active users in January 2023, just two months after launch, and looks positioned to shake up financial services in years to come. Well, it kind of feels like at the moment it wouldn't be an episode of, of, of the new show or any kind of fintech conversation without us mentioning ChatGPT at some point. Um, Benjamin, obviously massive disclaimers up front, and none of this constitutes sort of financial advice and, and all that usual thing. But I mean, what is the difference between using chat GPT for investment advice and you know a robo-advisor, which lots of people are getting very excited about at the moment. I hate the term robo-advisor because I think it's very unclear. Are you talking about automated stock selection or are you talking about automated sort of portfolio advice, including asset allocation? But leaving that aside, this is clearly stock selection. So in this case, we're talking about sort of automating the stock selection. Um, it's different in that um, a lot of automated propositions in the market are not actually based on artificial intelligence, right? You can automate a portfolio without necessarily using AI to do it. Um, what you're typically doing is either you've got some kind of index fund that's tracking the market, um, or you may have some kind of other rules and so on. Generally, it's rules-based and analytics-based rather than artificial intelligence-based. Um, what ChatGPT is presumably doing here is trying to pick up on market signals that give it some kind of way of figuring out which, I mean, I don't know what it's doing. It could just be sheer luck, right? Um, Although eight weeks sounds impressive and, uh, you know, clearly it has outperformed. You need a longer period of time to know whether that's not just sheer luck, right? There's that thing of, you know, throwing throwing a dart at a newspaper. If any of our listeners know what a newspaper used to be, they used to have stock listings in the back. They list the prices every day. And there was this thing that you could get a monkey to throw a dart at it. And a a portfolio selected that way could beat the market over a short period of time. I suspect there's more to this than that. I suspect that ChatGPT is in some way picking up on sentiment about stocks and using that. Um, I mean, quantitative investing has been going on for decades. Um, For decades, people have been trying to use computers to outperform, often successfully, over short, medium, and even long-term periods. Um, So this is different in that it's using artificial intelligence, and it's different in that it's conceivable that there is something in here that the AI is picking up on that humans are not seeing, but it could just be blind luck over that first eight-week period. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, from from reading it, it talks about it leveraging investment principles of leading firms, which I guess some people might see as a better source of information than you know what lots of the other sources that people are, are turning to. You know, Anita, we're obviously seeing huge uptakes in people kind of turning to social media and things like that for for investment advice. You know, do you think this is a better or worse approach than that? 
I, I don't know if it's necessarily better or worse. I think it's just a little more of the same. But my my bigger question is like, if if everybody starts using ChatGPT for advice, there's no alpha, right? So I think the key is actually going to be, you know, it, it's too short of a time period to tell whether using just ChatGPT alone is is really a sound strategy. But I think the key is going to be when you can actually personalize and customize what these algorithms are telling you. Um, and I know that there are some startups out there, some companies that I've spoken with that are working on helping firms, like financial firms, take their own proprietary data, feed it into the chat GPT algorithm, and then use that to give them tailored insights. So I think similarly to you know somebody who's just going and asking their friends for advice or going on social media, you need to have a starting point as to what are the principles you're you're looking to invest around. You know, what are your goals? What are your desired outcomes? What's your time horizon? And all of those things are going to play a bigger role, I think, in in the success. I don't think that, you know, this sort of like outperformance from ChatGPT is something that's necessarily sustainable or replicable for everybody. Um, so I think the personalization component is going to be really important here. Yeah, really interesting. I suppose, you know, based on some of those conversations you're having and some of the you know, propositions that you think are kind of likely to come to market in the near future, you know, do you think that traditional financial advisors, wealth managers should be worried? I think they perhaps already should have been worried, just given the trend of like the younger generation, you know, turning to digital advisors um, and and different forms of getting information from the internet. It's not all, it's not a new phenomenon that comes with the rise of ChatGPT. I think that the digitization of financial advice has been underway for a long time now. Benjamin, obviously we're having chats about AI and you know artificial intelligence all the time now. How do you think financial services should be embracing this or should be leveraging this? There are so many ways. Um, I think a starting point is to say that this question uh, that Anita was just talking about, about um, solving solving the financial advice problem for mainstream consumers, that's probably the last big unsolved problem in retail financial services. How do you get good financial advice to mainstream customers? Um, as you know, Kate, we spent a lot of time at 11FS doing direct consumer research. And one of the things, and we've done quite a lot of work for wealth management firms recently. And you know, I've sat through or, take, or led dozens of interviews with investors, and it's really striking how few people have a really good system. Um, there are people who pick stocks and pick their investments on really quite random things. And you listen to them describing their strategy and you think, oh, my God, you know, you're, you're investing all of your money on like whims and hunches and you've got your whole portfolio in Apple. Now, Apple's a good company, but you've got your whole portfolio in Apple. Hello. Um, so... I think there's a massive opportunity to give people better financial advice and give people better investment advice. And that hasn't been available to most mainstream customers. Artificial intelligence provides a way of doing that. There's, you know, there are other technologies that help. Um, I think the problem you get is when you don't know why it's doing that, right? So one of the interesting things about this article and this news is, well, okay, so they've taught chat GPT some basic principles, but why is it doing what it's doing? And one of the challenges with AI is always explainability. Right. So if you have an AI portfolio and it loses money, well, why did it lose money? How do you know? And I think that's going to be one of the big challenges going forward um, for the industry is how do you explain uh, AI? And there's dozens of other opportunities. I mean, the, the, what you can use AI for in financial services is vast. Um, like we'd need multiple podcasts to do that. So I'm not going to try and answer that now. I swear we will, over time, I'm sure we will have multiple podcasts to, to cover it. Um, Anita, we're seeing, I think, increasing kind of nervousness and anxiety almost, I think, about the potential of, of AI. You know, 
we've had a letter signed by more than 1,000 experts warning the potential risks. Do you, do you think we're going to see a sort of a slowdown or kind of people kind of stepping back from this and, and trying to almost like rein progress in a bit until we work out precisely how we're going to use it? I think it would be prudent if there was a slowdown, but I think it's really unlikely. I mean, we're seeing all the big tech companies invest, you know, several millions of dollars into this technology. And I think that the competition is just too great that even though we have so many experts in the field coming and saying, let's be a little more conscientious when we build this technology, I don't think that in reality that it's going to happen because of the incentives in the market um, and how much money people are making already from deploying these products and streamlining their processes. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the negative effects that we see, we don't even know what they could be until um, until AI is more integrated into corporate processes. I can't think of any issue on which I agree with Vladimir Putin. But back in <laughs> back in 2017, he said that the nation that leads in AI will be the ruler of the world. So if we take our stop thinking about financial services just for a moment, I think there are some reasons to be very, very scared about the potential of what AI can do either in the wrong hands or out of control. So I think as we look forward, while there's tremendous opportunity, is also frightening. With great power comes great responsibility. I'd like to throw a Indeed. sneaky Spider-Man reference in wherever I can. Well, on that, uh, on that somber note, I'm going to move us on to the next section of the show. And this is a section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some more click-worthy news from this week. Benjamin, I believe you're going to start us off on this one. Yes. So this was reported in The Guardian, uh, which is that Australian gamblers are to be banned from using credit cards for online betting. The Australian federal government is set to introduce new legislation banning the payment method within months. The changes will implement the recommendations of a parliamentary inquiry from 2021, which called for the ban. The trend of credit cards as a payment method is estimated to make up 20% of deposits into wagering accounts. The legislation will bring online gambling into line with land-based gambling, which already limits the use of credit cards. The exact mechanism will be decided through consultation with stakeholders, but the government plans to use bank identification numbers, or BINs, used to identify and block credit card payments. Australian Communications Minister Michelle Rowland said, people should not be betting with money they do not have. Um, I completely agree. Uh, Gambling is fun, you know, like alcohol, tobacco, various types of drugs, um, but they can also be very harmful uh, if used too much, and they're also somewhat addictive. Um, It's easy for people to get addicted to things like gambling and then start using credit for it, and that's incredibly bad for them. It's incredibly bad for their families. Um, It also makes no sense to allow something for online that's not allowed in uh, other other types of venue. Um, So, yes, um, good for the Australian government. I think many other governments either have similar rules in place or should do. You shouldn't be betting on credit because it's just not going to end well. I thought we weren't doing financial advice on, on the show. No, no, all good. That's, that's, that's very sensible. That's barely financial advice. It's life advice. Our <laughs> uh, second story in this section comes from AltFi, and that is that Microsoft has teamed up with Stripe, GoDaddy, and PayPal for in-meeting payments. As many businesses continue to operate in a remote space, Microsoft is embedding payment capabilities into its video platform teams. The new offering will allow users to connect their GoDaddy payments, PayPal, and Stripe accounts to facilitate transactions within a meeting setting. 
businesses will be able to access funds in seconds before, during or after a team session, according to Stripe's press release. The offering, now live, is available for businesses in the United States and Canada and will allow users to collect payments on both desktop and mobile meetings. I mean, I think this, I can I can see a, a kind of a clear use case for this, you know, where we're increasingly seeing um events and classes and, and sort of services being kind of hosted in, in Zoom and Teams, you know, sort of having the, op- the opportunity to easily collect payments for things, I think, makes sense. Um, and it feels like this is very much focused on sort of smaller businesses. I can't really sort of imagine, um, you know, like big, big business deals being signed over Teams and, and sort of the money just being sort of clicked there and then. I'm sure it still has to go through usual procurement processes and KYC checks and things like that. But I suppose in some ways I'm I'm interested to see if they just see this as a sort of one and done product launch as in like we've offered payments, now we'll stop. Or if this becomes like just a foundational point for them thinking about teams almost as a sort of you know, discovery space for people to you know, discover products and, and services. Um, you know, I'm just trying to think back to like the last you know, occasion when this would have been relevant to me, you know, actually was when I was doing my, my like parenting class before my son was born. And actually it'd be one thing to kind of make a payment for something, but it's a totally different opportunity if if as part of that course you know you're you're recommended a product or you know you think oh I should buy this or I should buy that and that is then integrated or embedded into that experience I think that could then potentially become even more powerful for some of these small businesses if they have the ability to both collect payments and also make additional product and service recommendations so um yeah it makes a lot of sense to me and I'm keen to see where they go with it next Okay, well, now for the final section of the show, looking at a more lighthearted story from the last week. This one comes from the BBC News, and that is that microscopic monarch names are being etched onto a coronation coin. Scientists have etched the names of King Charles III's Windsor forebears in microscopic writing on a 50p coin to celebrate the coronation. The inscription, which is thinner than a human hair, has been created at the University of Nottingham using a specialist microscope. The inscription features the names of all of the monarchs from King George V to King Charles III, along with the dates of their coronations. The uncirculated coin featuring the king's face is due to be sent to the monarch who will be crowned on the 6th of May. A replica is due to go on display at the university. The team previously etched a message onto a corgi hair blimey, to celebrate Queen Elizabeth II's 90th birthday. I'm trying to like actually get my head around like how how tiny this text is and it's slightly slightly hurting slightly hurting my brain um benjamin is this a is this a good use of the university of nottingham's time and obviously huge expertise um does feel that there probably ought to be more use more, more useful uses of this technology um so you know wonderful i mean you know let's celebrate the coronation and it's a nice way to celebrate the coronation but um yeah I'm trying to think like where is this actually where is it actually useful to be able to write things that small like there must I assume there is an actual practical use case I assume they're not just doing this for giggles like they must be doing it in other for other reasons or other industries and they're just doing this as a bit of a novelty thing but uh, yeah our, our producer Matt's just suggested a mouse's birthday card but I mean, <laughs> I mean that you know I'm just trying to think if they're actual Anita can you think of anywhere in your life where it'd be practically useful to have minuscule 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 writing i really can't but my question is is it's just one coin right they're engraving yep. a single one yep 
No, there's a replica as well. There's a replica as well. Okay, two. Oh, okay. I see. I see. Well, you know, I, I think as funny as this particular use case or instance is, like the symbolism behind what we put on our money does matter. And, you know, in the US, we saw like the, we saw, we're seeing that in 2030, Harriet Tubman is going to be on the $20 bill. I think that's great. So I think, you know, this is it's a little funny. It's a single coin. But when it comes to the symbolism behind our money, that actually is a pretty important issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm already, I'm like a massive history nerd at, at heart. And I already am very excited about like showing my son all these like old coins and museums and in years to come and stuff like that. So no, I completely agree that that money is, and, and what we put on our currency is, is hugely significantly important. Um, obviously, you know, we can't have a, an episode of the show close to coronation without having a bit of a, a bit of a laugh about fintech equivalents. So we're going to imagine that fintech is now a monarchy. Um, Benjamin, who would you nominate as your fintech monarch? It can be a king or a queen uh, for coronation. And who is their court jester? So to me, fintech is all about doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people, um, you know, solving real problems. So I'm tempted to nominate some of the sort of team in India behind UPI and Adhar and so on, because, you know, they've done amazing work that's made a difference to millions of sorry, billions of people, because India is now the most populous country in the world. It's just overtaking China. Um, but I think I've got to go with Mohammed Yunus, founder of Grameen Bank. Okay, a long time back, but he really started that movement of using finance to benefit the poorest in society. Um, so he would be my uh, fintech monarch for being one of the first to start using technology to help people uh, financially. And then I think court jester, it's very hard to think of anyone other than Elon Musk, who just stands out as a massive fool who's possibly wise. <laughs> Anita, who who are you nominating for your fintech coronation? Well, I do want to preface this by saying I would rather have a DAO be running this whole fintech system fictionally that we're talking about. But if I do have to choose an individual monarch, um, I would probably say it would be one of my favorite uh, content creators, Nicole Kasperson, she does a lot of writing and research on diversity in fintech and just is really big on inclusion in the space. And I think that's a super important conversation to be having. So if I have to pick one person, I'm going to pick the person who I, I think will try to represent a broader set of people. Um, and that's my answer for the monarch. But in terms of the court jester, my my answer was Sam Bankman-Fried. It's just the uh, <laughs> the proceedings around all of that is a gift that keeps on giving. It's completely wild and you know he he does all these things that are like, like what are you doing man keeping me entertained <laughs> yeah absolutely um i suppose from my perspective you guys have both given very sort of wise and sage nominations so i'm putting under pressure now i just i just have a massive fintech crush on up in australia so i'm going to give my my crown to dom pym who's kind of leading a lot of what they're building i think uh, he's he's creating really great product and he's been really involved in some really interesting initiatives in, in the Australian fintech scene. So big kudos to him. Um, and my court jester, yeah, I didn't really give as much thought to this one as I really probably should have done. But I can't really disagree with Elon Musk, I think. Yeah, he's he's really clowning about. Um, and yeah, hopefully we don't see don't see too many more contenders. We want the space to continue doing well and for companies to keep flourishing rather than making massive mistakes and, and, and going under. So um, fingers crossed for more kings and queens and, and not as many court jesters. 
Okay, well, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Benjamin? Uh, so Benjamin Ensor on LinkedIn, or uh, you can find out all about the work the team is doing at 11fs.com. Awesome. And Anita, what about you? You can find me at Anita Ramaswamy on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. And recently, you can also find me at Anita R on Blue Sky, if you guys are into that. Awesome. Yeah, definitely check it out. And as for me, you can contact me at, on my email at kate at 11FS on LinkedIn or on Twitter at k8moody. A massive thank you to you, our listeners, for listening. You can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye. <laughs>